The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series created by Mercedes Lackey and Steve Libby, presenting Book Two, The Hunt, Karma Chameleon, written by Cody Martin and Mercedes Lackey, read by Veronica Jaguer. Payback was hell. John Murdoch had spent the last five years of his life thinking about no one and nothing but himself. Now it seemed that every responsibility he had shrugged off in those years was coming back on him. He kept trying to distance himself from the people in this neighborhood, but he continually found himself unable to refuse them. What was it? What had gotten across all those lines he'd drawn in the sand? the walls he'd built brick by brick around himself. Hell, maybe it was just karma catching up to him. Once upon a time, before that program, he'd have pitched in here without a second thought. That person, that Johnny Murdoch, seemed like a stranger to him now. Someone out of a book or a movie. Someone he couldn't possibly be. Now he kept feeling urgently like he needed to get out before anyone actually got to know him. Beyond that, he was simply getting to be too high profile. First the word had spread throughout the neighborhood. Then there was that echo patrol that had gotten wind of him. Damn it. John cursed to himself. It can only go downhill from here. And it wasn't like he could just back out either. He'd set himself up at his squat fairly well. He was living much better than he had in years, though that wouldn't normally have been saying much. Regular meals, though. A regular place to sleep that he didn't have to share with drunks, junkies, crazed homeless, or bugs. That was just the material side of it, though. The people here, beyond all reason and expectation, had welcomed him. Trusted him. It was madness, of course, had been from the start. Still, maybe that was what had gotten to him. The trust. It wasn't something he had given or received for far too long, and he ached for it somewhere deep inside of himself. He hated the broken record feeling of playing through all of these thoughts and emotions over and over again. Still, it was too surreal for him to not dwell on it. Days weren't the part that really got him nervy, though. He didn't have to think much during the day. Days were full of rebuilding and clean-up efforts. It was mostly manual labor, but he did his fair bit of organization, too. That's where John really came into his element. He had the ability to get people doing what needed to be done, and do it the right way. Folks weren't always happy with how he presented himself when he was playing the leader shtick, but what mattered was that things got done and without the bickering and infighting that would have probably clouded even the most cooperative of efforts. Right now, what they needed to get done were the community gardens. Not pretty ones, but working ones. Grocery deliveries were still sporadic, and half the people here that had once had jobs were either unable to get to them, or else the job was under a pile of rubble. Relief shipments were equally unreliable, as was the pattern for outside help. The rich and clean parts of town got first dibs. On the plus side, no landlords had shown up looking for the monthly rent checks, 
and the city seemed to have forgotten, maybe fearing riots, that utilities were supposed to be paid for. On the minus side, people were going to need to eat. Gardens would provide some of that. And John had managed to find seeds in some of the most unlikely places. The wreck of a hardware store here, an abandoned grocery there, even an old five-and-dime that had nearly been moribund by the look of it before the invasion. John was busy screwing together a set of two-by-fours for a mulch bed when one of the neighborhood kids came running up to the cleared lot that was going to serve as the site of the garden. He set down the power drill he was working with, wiping his hands on an already dirty T-shirt. "'What's the rush, kid? You want to try your hand at this?' "'Nuh-uh, Mr. John.' The youth gulped for breath, hands on his knees. "'I came over here to tell you there was a guy at your place. He's asking for you. Some dude in a suit.' "'Suit?' John's heart felt like it froze in place. "'The program. They're here.' After a few moments of sheer panic, John started breathing again, relaxing his hands so that they weren't balled up into white-knuckled fists. Then his reason came back. Time to think, time to work and out for this. Did he ask for me by name? Does he know I'm here right now? Nuh-uh. He just said that he was looking for the meta that was looking after our hood. What do you think he wants? John shook his head. Dunno, kid. But I aim to find out. Stay here. Jonas looks like he needs a hand with those bags of soil. Why don't you give him a hand? He patted the kid on the shoulder, doing his very best to walk calmly. He didn't want to spook any of the people at the garden, some of whom had heard his conversation with the boy and had clearly taken an interest. Once he was a block away, edging against one of the destruction corridors, he started running. His mind was racing with strategies, possibilities, escape plans. How would he get out of the city? Out of the country? Off the planet? If it were only possible. Who was it? Why did they want him? Should he just abandon everything and start running now? It would have been smarter to go in the exact opposite direction than the one he was heading. But... John couldn't shake the thought that whoever it was that was looking for him might lean on the residents of the neighborhood to try and find him. If he could have had just the trouble all for himself, he would have taken it readily. He wasn't prepared to set up folks that were depending on him for more pain than they had already gone through, though. He had the distinct impression when the kid said suit, he wasn't talking about a three-piece and tie. Armor, maybe or the whole package like that silent night Echo Mach 3. Had Echo sent someone else after him now? Well, he was about to find out. In less than five minutes he had arrived, edging to the corner of a building and peeking out around it. John was somewhat surprised at what he saw. It wasn't armor. In fact, the guy looked like a used car salesman. What John's old man used to call the Sears sucker suit. Polyester, the kind of thing that you couldn't destroy with a nuke. Blue, because that was supposed to be somehow less intimidating than black. He was middle-aged, 
and it showed on his form. A spare tire was definitely growing around his midsection. He stood there, hands clasped behind his back, staring up at John's old industrial building as if waiting for him to appear in one of the windows. Well, this is different. What the hell does this guy want? Waiting a few heartbeats to collect himself, John finally strode up from around the corner, making a beeline for the suit. His training still kept him on his toes. He was careful to approach the stranger from his right side, which would probably be the hand he used to go for a weapon since most people were right-handed. Coming at him in that way would mean that the muzzle or whatever dangerous bit this guy could pull would have to travel in a longer arc in order to get a beat on John. The stranger looked over to John as if pleasantly surprised. John came to a stop about fifteen feet away, taking the chance to be the first to speak. So, you're looking for me. Who are you and what do you want? I got stuff to do. The name's Chuck Smith, the man said, with a professional, snake-oil smile. He looked down, kicking a piece of concrete rubble absent-mindedly. He took a couple of steps after the debris towards John. I think you might be interested in a proposal from my firm. Chuck Smith? I guess it's better than if his last name had been Stake. John eyed him sourly. What firm and what are you offering? If you were able to find me, you probably already know I'm fairly set as it is, and I don't like much in the way of annoyances. The man rubbed the back of his head and shifted his weight towards John. That would be Echo, I gather. The man chuckled and rocked forward a little on his toes. He took another step forward, close enough now for John to notice that he was wearing some sort of light body armor under his hideous suit. Super Kevlar, maybe, the next gen from the old flak jackets. Tesla's nanny squad. Well, they have their hands full these days, and they're pretty short of personnel. You can rest assured that we don't bite off more than we can chew. You still haven't told me who this we is. The stranger fished in his jacket as John tensed, watching him through narrowed eyes. But all that came out was a card. The man handed it to him. It was a much more polished piece of presentation than the rep was. Not just a business card, this was a tiny CD. Slip it in a computer and it would probably give you a slick PowerPoint pitch. Black Snake Security Services, it said in flowing script. Professional protection guaranteed. Black Snake. That PMC that got famous over in the sandbox. Your Mercs. John had never had too much of a taste for Merc work. There were some reputable companies, but for the most part, they were like Black Snake. Most private military companies concern themselves with private security, through personal bodyguard work and protecting key sites for their employers. Others focused on fulfilling roles that under-equipped and corrupt militaries in third-world countries couldn't provide, and some even filled humanitarian roles. Black Snake, and the companies like them, went deeper than that. Assassination. Never directly traced back to them, naturally. 
and assisting in coups weren't out of their scope. John lowered the card, looking at Chuck. So what do you want with me? We're recruiting. We heard about some of your work here, and we figured you could do better than this. With us. Smith glanced up at the abandoned building, with a little smile playing on his lips. We've even got a dental plan. Most PMCs required at least four years of military service, top-secret security clearances, specialty skills like being able to speak a foreign language, with special forces experience being a plus. And Smith couldn't know whether or not John had any of that. Or so he hoped. I know what you're thinking. We couldn't possibly want you. Well, under most circumstances, that would be true. We don't know anything about you, except that your actions tend to indicate you've got some training in... How to put this? Our area of interest. And without references, that would normally not be enough to get you a lookover. But... Smith raised a finger. You're a meta. And we're prepared to waive a lot of things to recruit a meta. Why? Because there seem to be so fewer of us lately? John hesitated a moment before replying. No, thanks. I'll figure out something on my own. If you'll kindly get out of my neighborhood, we'll call it a day. And don't be stopping by with any more offers. I'm not interested. We collect bounties. He sighed heavily. Don't make me do something we'll both regret. John arched an eyebrow, uncrossing his arms. He straightened up to his full height, easily half a foot over Smith's. He ignited a jet of flame in his right hand, letting it sit there idly at his side. I'm already regretting you coming here. Don't make it any worse for yourself. Now get... John had expected him to try to negotiate, or even to try to come off as a hard-ass with some sort of we'll-get-you line. But he didn't. Instead, he moved, and moved far quicker than his appearance had led John to believe he could move. It was only after Chuck had gut-punched John, hard, that he realized that he had allowed the Black Snake representative to get within arm's reach. John was staggered, almost stumbling backwards onto the ground. His flame extinguished, he wrapped his arms around his aching midsection as he widened his stance to catch himself. Looking up as he sucked in breath, John saw Chuck unbuttoning the front of his jacket, revealing a pulsating device on his belt. Some sort of iridescent armor gleamed dully under his shirt. Even though John had smited earlier on, he hadn't recognized what mate or model it was. His mistake. This was going to be a fight. Not wasting a moment, John snapped into action. His enhancements hurtled him faster than any normal man could move naturally. Chuck was caught off guard by the unexpected movement, and John had a clean shot at disabling his attacker. He clamped his left hand around his opponent's shoulder. Why was he so damned slippery? And prepared to step into Chuck to plant an elbow through his throat. It was a killing move, 
and would have crushed the man's trachea and maybe even his spine with John's enhanced strength. Then there was more pain, as John's elbow smashed into the air less than a centimeter from Smith's throat. In another snap moment, John was being kneed and hit simultaneously. He reacted, blocking the blows, but was still driven back. What the hell was that? His elbow throbbed. He had no doubt it would have been snapped from the force of his blow, if it had been only bone. Not friendly, John. Yes, we know your name. Your first name, anyway. Not friendly at... John was already on top of Chuck again, lashing out with fists, elbows, feet, and knees. He tried to grapple with the other man, but couldn't find purchase. He couldn't grab onto his clothing, hair, or even his limbs without receiving a flurry of return blows. John's body was rocked by the strikes and his vision blurred. Getting hit wasn't like it was in the movies. Getting punched and kicked hurt, knocked the air out of him, dizzied him, and made it hurt to block or return those blows. Ducking under a swing and redirecting a vicious kick by twisting out of the way and slapping it with the flat of his right hand, John dropped to the ground. He arced his leg hard into Chuck's rear foot, where all of his opponent's weight was resting. Smith's legs went out from under him. Whatever sort of force field he had on, it didn't make him completely invulnerable. As soon as Chuck was flat on his back, John was on top of him, trying to put the other man into a hold so that he could get at the device on his belt. More blows, aimed at John's face in midsection. His ribs creaked, and he had several cuts opening on his brow, cheek, chin, and lips. John knew that he couldn't take too much more of this sort of punishment. He needed to end this fight, and fast. Smith managed to snake an arm out from under John's hold, and used it to grapple John closely. There was a sharp whump, accompanied by a flash of light, and John was skidding across the ground, his skin tearing open on gravel and broken glass. His back slammed against a curb, stopping him instantly. Stars were swimming in front of his eyes, but he jumped to his feet out of reflex. Chuck was still climbing up from the ground. He was fast, but he wasn't the most nimble person. John relaxed, letting his control wane for a moment. Twin lances of blindingly white flame sprung from his outstretched hands, flying towards John's attacker. Both jets of fire rebounded off of the force field at obtuse angles, cutting jagged swaths through whatever rubble or abandoned building they impacted with. Chuck, finally back on his feet, looked worried, but continued to move towards John. John responded with more fire, surrounded his attacker in it completely, firing arm-thick bolts of plasma, igniting the asphalt beneath his feet. None of it got through, and Chuck kept advancing. John continued blasting and moving, never allowing himself to get cornered. If he got within an arm's reach of Smith again, he might not be able to recover in time. His shin was bruising terribly from where he had kicked the force field with it, and he was starting to limp. His ribs told him they didn't want him to breathe anymore, and the blood trickling into his eyes demanded that he stop trying to see. Sick and tired of this shit. John fainted to his left, then back to his right before charging at Chuck head-on. He fired a wide burst of flame at his opponent's face, obscuring his vision. Chuck threw his hands up in front of his face and stumbled backwards, instinctually flinching away from the attack. John closed in with his opponent, 
and scrambled for the techie-looking belt, which he could only assume and hope controlled the force fields. If he could disable it, he was sure he could make quick work of this bastard. His fingers scratched at the invisible wall just a centimeter above the device. Unable to penetrate, John's control on his fires lapsed, and Chuck was able to see again. He grabbed John by the back of his neck and his belt. John could see some sort of hydraulic joints rippling through the elbows, shoulders, and knees of Chuck's suit as he hefted John above his head, and then through the old soldier. John impacted with the brick wall beside the entrance of his home fifteen feet above the ground, crushing several of its bricks and knocking a good many others loose before falling back to earth with a sickening thump. Everything went black for what seemed like an eternity, give or take a few millennia. When he came to, he knew that he was still alive, at least somewhat. Smith was talking again. It sure is nifty, isn't it? See, these are the advantages of working with Black Snake. You get all of the best toys. This servo-motor exoskeleton gives me the strength of twenty men. Slow and somewhat ungainly, but very fine for power work. Don't you think? John didn't want to move. He couldn't hardly breathe, and his vision was dark around the edges if you didn't count the stars swarming in front of his eyes. He was done, and done for. He couldn't defend himself effectively any more, and this smarmy and smug middle-management flunky was going to be the end of him. The real shame is that it didn't have to be like this. Chuck paced slowly towards where John was laying, not in a great hurry to finish off his opponent. I would offer you a second chance, but I have an appointment downtown. I have to pick up a new suit before then, so I'll make this quick. Open or closed casket, John? For me? Or you? John croaked out, blood seeping from his mouth. It clicked for him right as he finished delivering what he thought were going to be his last words again. Smith smiled, raised a foot to crush the life out of John. And then the air inside of his protective force field ignited into plasma, which in turn ignited his clothing, skin, and what little hair he had in the first place. Chuck couldn't scream, because all of the air in his lungs was on fire, and the lungs themselves were seared in an instant. John lay there watching as Chuck Smith did an odd sort of dance, cooked alive silently in his own force field. For one moment, the memory of the kid in New York, ramping up until he was nothing but a man-shaped thing too white-hot to look at, flashed across his memory. After a few seconds of this grisly sight, the black snake recruiter fell backwards, and whatever device that had been powering his force field malfunctioned and sputtered into non-activity. John didn't have the strength or the willpower to stand. He crawled over the rubble and grit, crawled up the stairs to his flat, and then crawled into bed. After that, the world stopped for John Murdoch as unconsciousness took over. Seraphim watched the man below her crawling towards the entrance of his building. It would be a long crawl up, with no working elevators. Solemnly, she sensed the terrible pain he was in, how he had been reduced to mere animal instincts. 
Only once had there been any kind of moment of feeling in this fight, and it had not been for the man who had called himself Chuck Smith, and who was, in fact, actually Roger McSky, a senior recruiting agent for Blacksmith, operating under the code name Hardbody. No, John Murdoch had felt nothing for this man, even at the moment that John was killing him. When someone became an opponent for John, an attacker, a threat, they ceased to be human. The brief rush of emotion had come with the memory of that poor child in New York. Guilt, anger, bewilderment, and anguish that John had been unable to help him. And that had been over in a moment. John Murdoch was a brutal and dispassionate fighter, divorced emotionally from the killing and the need to kill. He had begun the fight with what should have been a murderous blow. He had ended it with another. But she sensed a terrible void in him, and mourning, far past conscious thought, that this was what he had become. He recognized what he was, and hated it. This, perhaps, was the root of his self-hatred. Somehow, somehow he had to come out of this. Somehow he had to heal, or be healed, if he was to grow to become whatever it was that was on the other side of that blank spot in the futures. There were other futures where, presumably, he did not change. One ended here. Black Snake would send another operative, and he would die. One already aborted and withering. He had accepted the offer and gone on to join the mercenaries. Amusingly, that one ended when he was sent to kill her, and she showed him the inside of his own mind. Where that would have led, she could not see, for already that future was crumbling. There were those where he ran, those where he joined Echo and was reclaimed by his program, others where he became a kind of half-recluse in this building, emerging only at night to scour the neighborhood for things to kill. But most of those were withering, too. He was already changing. He could not stop the change. That was just as well. Those futures all ended in apocalypse, the thing she had been sent to prevent. He had managed to get the door to his apartment open now and crawl inside. She considered this. Considered helping him. Animals wounded near death would crawl off alone to heal or die. Which would he do now? She opened her mind a little and let other thoughts brush against hers. The child. The grocer. The old woman who was knitting him socks from yarn saved from ruined sweaters, who fed him soup and thought about him as a kind of surrogate grandchild. Those would do. Gently, she suggested that something was wrong. John had not been seen for hours. Someone should look in on him. Satisfied that the suggestion had settled into their minds, she sighed and turned her thoughts farther outward. There. Another one to save. She was away in a flash of fire. John was angry. He was actually waking up, which wasn't precisely what he had expected to happen. And waking up carried with it all the burdens of being conscious and alive after the fight with Smith. 
namely various types and degrees of pain. It took him a long time to be able to pry his swollen eyes open, widening them until the thin slivers of light leaking through became smeared in overbright shapes. His head pounded as if Smith was still hammering on it. His mouth was as dry as sandpaper, and his entire body felt as if it had been passed underneath of a steamroller. He'd felt worse, but not much worse, and not often. Eventually, his vision focused again after much effort. He made out the ceiling of the room that he usually slept in, with peeling paint and water stains from leaks in the roof. With Herculean effort, he was able to turn his head to the right, seeing Jonas snoozing quietly in a battered lawn chair. The TV was playing silently, and there were a few bags of groceries littered around the room. Looking down at himself, and immediately regretting doing so, John saw that his midsection was completely bandaged, as well as most of his arms and what he could see of his legs. Straining to reach up with his hand, he felt his own face. More bandages, sticky and itchy against his pulped and ruined skin. More scars. With a start, Jonas woke up, blinking several times as he looked about the dirty and dim room. Spying John and seeing that he was awake, he smiled kindly, his yellowed teeth gleaming in the single light bulb's glare. I was wondering when you would wake up. Was starting to get tired of feeding you and changing your bandages, kid. Figured I'd let the cockroaches and rats take over for me in a bit. I don't need to ask, but how are you feeling? Like hammered shit. You? John managed to prop himself up on an elbow, a feat in of itself considering how badly damaged his arms were. I'm dandy. I've had a couple folks looking after the store while I've been up here babysitting your sorry rear. Some of the younger fellas that you were working with have been taking over keeping the hood in check. They're not bad kids once they have something to put their minds to. Jonas passed his hand over his mostly gray salt-and-pepper hair. It's kind of funny. I used to watch a lot of nature shows, and I always figured they would like those young bucks button heads over girls in territory. <laughs> Turns out I was right. Now they can do just that and get praised for it. They've just settled right down. John nodded. He wasn't terribly sure as to what to say next. Thanks, he mumbled, for keeping me breathing. I'll actually start buying some of the junk that you have at the store now, maybe. It wasn't much, but Jonas recognized it for the compliment and sincere thanks that it was. Any time, fella. I figure that you'll live for now. Who was that fella that you had it out with? There wasn't much left of him when Toby came to fetch me. And to be honest, there wasn't much left of you either. John was silent, looking off into a corner instead of meeting Jonas's gaze. After a few long moments, Jonas spoke again. Fair enough. Talkers are usually only talk when it comes to that sort of thing anyways. He sighed, standing up with an effort. 
now that it looks like you'll at least live for a little while longer, I've got to get back to the store. If you need anything, I'll have one of the kids come up here every couple hours or so. You heal pretty quick, so it shouldn't be all that long before you start pitching people out of windows again. Still quiet, John nodded, and the conversation ended. Jonas left the building, and left John with his thoughts. And the same as every night when it happened, or that he bothered to think about it. The shakes came again. Conditioned to fight effectively, to kill reflexively when his mind and all of the things that should have made him a man, made him human, told him not to, John was able to kill. Distance helped. Targets the end of a rifle scope were just empty uniforms that needed to be filled with neat holes. Once you got closer, it got harder. You could see human expression, how old the target was, if he had looked like someone you had known in the real world of back home. Most of the time, working with a unit of like-minded ass-kickers, the responsibility was diffused. You didn't precisely know, truly know, who had fired the fatal shot. In the latter part of John's career, that had changed. All of the killing was up close and extremely personal. You knew where the rounds went when you sent them down range, and there was an immense amount of aggression there. Knife kills, with a long blade or bayonet slipped into someone's kidney from behind, since slitting throats was a terrible cliché. John had known too many that had cut their own hands doing it, instead of getting it right, were the worst. You could feel exactly what you were doing to the person. You could feel the heat from their body, their sweat evaporating into the air, the breath leave them as they slumped to the ground. The paradox was that the easier it got, the worse it felt. Back home became more and more remote, something that had little relevance to who and what you were. Back home, they didn't understand. They lived a shallow, easy life where no one ever had to think about killing, and dying was something that happened by accident, or at the end of an illness or long life. Death was something easily meted out by Hollywood, or happened off-screen in slaughterhouses. After a while, you realized that it was only the men you worked and trained with, your buddies, that understood. But even that only helped so much. There was still the guilt, the horrible realization that you've done the worst thing possible to another being of your species. And you looked at your buddies and you saw one of two things. Either equal guilt that made you flinch away and avert your eyes, or utter lack of guilt that meant they were no longer human. Two percenters, those last sort were called. Guys that liked to torture small animals in their spare time. They were few and far between, but they were still apart. John honestly, earnestly, hoped he wasn't drifting in that direction. The Hollywood stereotype of buffed-out monsters that liked to use blood to make the grass grow green was overused and almost laughable. Skinny men with hollow eyes that would as soon knife someone in the back as soon as they turned away as look at them were the sort that scared John. What was worse was that he shared beers with them, and often. They wore the same uniform, ate the same MREs, and stood watch while he slept. 
He shook to wonder how far down their road he had already gone, and to realize he could not take that measure. It always took a few hours for him to get himself under control. Alcohol didn't help much, but it was something to steady him once he was done sweating and convulsing uncontrollably. Changing into a fresh shirt gingerly, and grabbing a beer out of a case that Jonas had generously left for him, John headed to the roof to think. It was a decent southern night, sticky hot and clear, with the stars doing their best to shine against the city lights. The air was practically alive with green smells again, thick and pungent. All of the fires since the invasion had gone out, so you could actually see the stars and the moon at night, which was a plus. John, no matter all of his posturing, liked to think of himself as a romantic at heart, despite his failings. Leaning with his forearms against a railing and a beer cradled in his hands, John lived in the moment. He wasn't particularly thankful, but he was there, and he was alive, and that's what mattered, for what it was worth. There was a sound behind him that he couldn't identify, a sighing sound, as if something parted the air gently and slipped down from the stars. Turning as fast as he could, which was terribly slow in his current condition, John looked to see what had surprised him. She was just alighting, weightlessly, one foot outstretched with infinite grace and poise, to touch the rooftop, fire wings extending upwards, not hammering or fluttering down like a bird. Whatever those wings were for, they had nothing to do with her flight. The Seraphim. Hello, John Murdoch. Her voice was a low alto, throaty, with five or six under and over tones, as if a chorus spoke with her voice. You again. The meta with delusions of divinity. Care for a drink? A friend of mine was kind enough to give me a few cold ones for recuperation purposes. John gestured casually with his beer bottle, despite the pain it caused him to move at all. One must keep up appearances, after all. Her eyes were the yellow gold of the heart of a fire, and they had no pupils. The seemingly blind gaze settled on the bottle in his hand. But it is not cold, she replied. The bottle abruptly chilled in his hand, acquiring a sudden bloom of condensation. "'Is now,' John said matter-of-factly, taking a long pull from the bottle. "'Thanks, by the way. You're full of surprises.' "'Am I?' She tilted her head to the side, looking oddly bird-like, but not a pretty little songbird, no matter how beautiful she was. This was a falcon gaze, the look of eagles, sizing up a lesser animal. And yet you strive so hard to seem unsurprised by anything. Yeah, well, I'm a jerk. What's new? Perhaps you can tell me. It is all old to me. The same cycle, endlessly repeating. John chuckled mirthlessly. 
Sister, it's always been the same play. Don't mean it hurts any less with each iteration. John took another long drink from his bottle. Men proving that they're men. Society humming right along. The best and the brightest running with the flow. And the rest of us stuck with the bill. The sun striking warm on a winter afternoon. The pure scent of the first honeysuckle in spring. A child's laugh. A lover's kiss. Joy, John Murdoch. Sorry, but I'm feeling morbid. Trifles to those of us that have taken everything and lost it all in the same act. Poetry. Folks, the boy wants to be a poet. John laughed again, mostly amused with himself. So be a poet. There's no money in it. But much joy. Food for the soul. John sighed. Joy doesn't pay the bills. Blood and sweat, however, do. You can do both. She waved a hand dismissively. One does not negate having the other. Millennia of artists have proved that. And millennia of dreamers, philosophers, mystics. You think they did not toil and sweat? Your self-imposed limitations are crutches, John Murdoch. You think they support you. You can walk with them. But you cannot run nor fly with crutches. John paused for a moment, leaning back against the railing on his elbows. You know, he said mock seriously, if you keep calling me John Murdoch, you're just my middle name away from sounding like my mother. Besides, killing is different. Spending the blood of others is different. And there ain't no good to come of it. Again, that eagle look. Your soul is sick, surfeited and sick with death. Where anyone else he knew would have looked away at that moment, somehow those blind eyes bored into his. Death is what it is. Not an ending, only a changing. The question becomes whether you have the right to be the instrument of that change. Forgive me if I'm skeptical. I've been too busy working at my profession to be pondering the philosophical implications. John grimaced, chugging the rest of his beer. He looked at his empty bottle in confusion, then turned to the supposed angel in his presence. Can you do anything about this? he said, holding up his bottle. Getting sloshed is a lot harder with runs to the fridge. She blinked once, and the bottle in his hand chilled again, growing heavy. He nodded, drinking from the now full bottle again. Much obliged. You intrigue me. 
A ripple passed through the fire of her wings. The depth of your despair is a challenge. Another ripple. It was pride that created the fallen, but it is despair that keeps them in hell. I should not like to see you in a hell of your own making, John. John looked at her soberly, still leaning against the railing. And why precisely do you give a damn, miss? She hesitated. It was not the sort of hesitation that usually came in a conversation. It felt for a moment as if everything around him was holding its breath, waiting to hear her answer. It felt portentous. Because everything depends on it. Her wings shuddered open wide, and her entire body took on a look of aliveness, of anticipation, and perhaps of fear. Well, gee. He got no chance to say anything more. I speak too much, she cried, and in a burst of flame, arrowed up into the sky like a shooting star in reverse. Watching her fading into a speck against the night sky and then vanishing, John was left alone with his thoughts. That was strange. He was too tired to care terribly much, to be honest. He'd somehow accepted that Meta's presence, despite the fact that she preached to him as much as any church's soup-kitchen Bible-thumper, and despite her having violated one of the few places where he felt a modicum of safety. She was nuts, that much he was certain of. But he had never seen anything like her, at all. Ever. Too damn weird. Not wanting to think any more, John took one last look at the sky, wondering if she'd be back again. Before he went inside, he desperately hoped for her sake, and his own, that she wouldn't be back.